0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a beautiful rainy Sunday here in Melbourne. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. I'm Dr Shane. You're stuck with us now until 12, so if you don't like science... Turn the station to... No, don't do that. We'll we'll convert you. Yeah, let us change your mind. We'll change your mind. Uh, There's the voice of Chris KP. Good morning, fella. How are you? I'm very good, very good. How are you? You know the rule. You're not allowed to speak until I say your name. You know what I think about rules. (laughs) 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 Andrea from the Bombers in the studio. Yes, finally. It's been a
2: while. I know. It's been a long time. Sorry about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, let me give you a picture, folks. If you've ever wanted to feel the feeling of rejection... Email Andrea and say, "Hey, are you free for Triple R this weekend? Because <laughs> usually oh. I get back the. No, I'm going the footy. <laughs> yeah,
2: footy season's over for <laughs> That's me, so we got you well and truly.
1: Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say. Well, you know, we both go for the same team, so I hear your pain. Um, but uh, you're back, you're back, and you're uh, you're doing some amazing things at the moment at the bureau. You're you're back out there in the front. Why?
2: I know. Just this week, it's been a bit of a change. I think part of the reason I am um, still at the bureau, but um, in a different role now, and yeah, making lots of really exciting new communication tools happen from the bureau, which mm. is very, very exciting.
1: Yeah, they're very app-enabled these days. The bureau, and there's well, lo- well more, more stuff. Yeah, but <laughs> there's more stuff available.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're just basically listening to our audience who wants more in the digital space, and so yeah. that's the way we're going.
1: Yeah, and uh, it is sad that you're no longer. The the term I love an embedded meteorologist, (laughs) where you'd be out there with the fireies. Because I always had this image of you stuck in a tree. When (laughs) I I heard well embedded meteorologist seemed to make sense. But um,
2: I do miss. I actually do really miss. That still sits for me as one of my most. Um, yeah, highlights. Yeah, one of the highlights of my, careers, uh, of my career. And I think um, I still try and stay very, very close to the weather and I'm still um, in our operational centres every day, talking to the Mets and staying up to date with it all. But, yeah, I definitely miss being out there on the front line.
1: Mm. Okay, we're going to come back in a moment and talk about what I can only refer to as weather porn for someone like yeah, yourself, what yeah. you've been doing. I mean, there's yeah. no, no other way to describe it. But, Chris KP, let's start with some other science news. What have you got?
3: Gastro. Oh gosh! Oh god! So, I'll be out of here! Yes. Yeah.
2: So, Did you hear the uh, door?
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't have gastro. Although you know, yeah, when you're really ill, especially with something like gastro, that can kick in pretty quickly. There's, you know, yeah, you've you've got just it's just sort of. Psychologically exhausting as well as everything else, oh, yeah. and a bit of a distraction is yeah. nice. Now I have one for you because I'm going to tell you a bit about what goes on. So when you when you get gastro, what's this, a large part of what's happening is you're getting bacteria from outside the outside world into the inside world. Now, generally speaking, in your intestines, it's an anaerobic environment, and the, and and the good bacteria in your in your in your microbiome operate in an anaerobic environment. There's not much oxygen, but the bad guys you let in prefer an, an, an oxygen-rich environment or more oxygen-rich. So, so when they get down there, there's kind of this bad problem they've got in your gut where there's not enough oxygen. However, they're even more evil than you thought. Turns out that when you get these pathogens inside you, they, they actually damage your intestinal lining, which is why you get diarrhoea, and that's that's part of the problem. But in order to repair that, your body then produces more... Skin cells, you know, internals, epithelial cells inside yeah. your intestine. And these new immature cells actually, uh, well, they come to the surface, but they actually contain more oxygen. And so you produce a more oxygen-rich environment inside your intestines, which is exactly what the bad guys that are causing this problem um. want. And so this is where you get this cycle. And so they can then grow up more more, you know, more, more, quickly and in greater numbers and cause more damage, and on it goes, and you get this horrible horrible problem. Anyway, um, the reason I mention this is because there is a bit of research... Um, which came out? I'm trying to find the right, the right. Uh, recently, anyway. Um, basically, fi- basically identifying that this is what they do, and by doing that, by identifying this is a process, it's not just making you sick; it's actually contributing to the whole process of gut lining processing. Um, they're able to produce, or they're able to suggest new ways of treating this, and this is basically around compromising the the target targeting factors that are produced by these uh, these uh, gastro producing bugs um, in order to try and then produce ways or develop ways of reducing the impact of them, mm. even once they get inside you, if you like. And by doing that, it's not an antibiotic a standard antibiotic treatment. And so the risk of inha- or, or exacerbating antibiotic-resistant bacteria yep. goes down goes immediately down. because you've got a whole different angle. Anyway, mm. there you go. Gastro on a Sunday morning.
1: Well, for those of you out there who are suffering from it, I'm sure that was a very interesting story. So, so, and, and if you're not, you know your time is coming. Oh, it hits everyone at some stage. Yeah. I always say that any any staff members people I work with always say if you ever wanna, you know, take a day off, you know, without being questioned, just pull the gastro term. Totally because no one will question that. No. And you don't want to be around those people. And it can happen overnight. Yeah. And it can happen for all different reasons and you do not want to risk it. Yeah. So don't come near me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Well, um, I, uh, I saw a piece of news that I'm going to put. It's from the University of California. Congratulations, University of California, for a piece of news that I'm today calling absolutely useless. Um, because the other week I was talking to a friend of my wife's um, about the possibility of getting some chickens, you know, because maybe we'll get our own eggs, you know. We've got some space here. So we might be able to get some chickens going. I'm trying to work out how, um, how difficult it would be to have these these chickens and so forth. And she said one of the things, that pieces of wisdom she gave me was that you put a little sandbox nearby <laughs> and the chickens jump around in the sandbox and it prevents them from getting mites and this sort of stuff. And mm. I thought, okay, this sounds like total horseshit That's to right. me. You know, I'm just making this stuff up. And, um, and I said, okay, yeah, sure, fine. And then I had to send her this news that came out this week from the University of California, where amazingly um, these researchers have worked out that if you have a sandbox... Near some chickens, um, it will prevent them from getting mites. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking northern hemisphere. Every now and then, we should have a segment on this show called "Call an Aussie," <laughs> where they could ring up and ask but a totally mundane piece of uh, question, and we'll give you an
3: answer. But presumably, if they, if <coughs> you, if you, you throw that at these scientists, if you challenge them with that, they'd go, "Oh yeah, yeah, but we can prove it, now, quantitatively, and they
1: have, and they have yeah. done that, and they've, they've actually taken, you know, a range of chickens, and in some cases, they took these beautifully clean chickens and they gave them somewhere between twenty and thirty mites each um, for <laughs> oh, two consecutive <laughs> weeks. You know, I mean, yeah, it's chickens, are not even a fun time. And basically, they monitored uh, the infestations and the size and so forth. Because one of the things that happens, and I I was aware of this, but um, if you do have the infestation, the um, reduction in sort of um, eggs that you would get goes down by up to four percent. Now, if you think in commercial environments, four four percent is a lot of eggs, and you know, and, and even just in your backyard environment, you know, it's sort of I guess I don't know. That's good. It's not a big change, actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Depends how many chickens yeah, you have. <laughs> after
1: after a few weeks, you might go out and go, oh, but I, the four percent hit me. I There's wonder, nothing
3: there. But I wonder if the um, if if mm. the mite infestation, even domestically, even in your own backyard, does that does that have any connection to other medical issues? Could, could the you know could it uh, you know could there be a secondary uh, issue for the chickens which might have a greater mm. impact on their their egg laying?
1: yeah, and and look, I mean, all of these things do affect the overall health of the chicken. Yeah. So I mean, you you do want to reduce it. Um, there is a scenario, I suppose, where you you have to isolate. Mice infected chickens from chickens that don't have it. And one of the things the researchers did tell me, um, which actually my wife's friend told me as well, uh, was that this is a she good... She needs to
2: call them up I and say uh, hello.
1: Well, I actually sent her a Facebook message that said, didn't know you were publishing. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice work. Yeah. I thought you'd pulled this out of your... Anyway. Um and, uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 great, great press." <phrase. laughs> Um, but it's also preventative. So the, ah, the use of the yeah. sandbox is also, it's not just when you've got them, you stick them in there and and the mites you know, are, are sorted out. Mm. This is also a great preventative. And that's important because if you think of the commercial environments we're talking about where there's a lot of pesticide use and so mm. forth to prevent these problems, mm. we're eating this crap. Um, I would much rather those chickens be having a bit of a roll in the sand yeah. than us potentially consuming... Um, you know, through eggs or anything. I mean, you know, this stuff gets into everything, the water spine yeah. the whole lot. Yeah, that's right. um, you you are consuming it whether you're eating the eggs or the chickens or or something in between. So it's yeah, interesting, interesting work. Now let's get on to something fun. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. The, the weather porn. <laughs> I mean, right. that's what the only way, the way the to the describe the it. Wow! it is. <laughs> Chris, you know Sorry. that music well. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only way to describe it. You have been over in the US. Yes. And what were you doing there, Andrea?
2: Well, first of all, I just want to say that I don't encourage anyone to go storm chasing.
1: <laughs> you do, you bold. But unless you're a weather person, in which case chase. <laughs>
2: well, as you as you know, I am a meteorologist because I saw the movie Twister when I was twelve years old yeah. and said, right, that's. I'm going to do. So pretty much ever since I knew that such a thing as a bucket list existed, (laughs) uh, seeing a tornado has been my number one on my bucket list. So I decided it was about time that I got myself over to the States during the storm season and um, yeah, went trying to find some storms and just happily did that this year finally in May and just might have seen 14 tornadoes 14.
1: out of
2: one... Oh, dang. ...out of one
1: thunderstorm. Wow. Really?
2: unbelievable. And Absolutely unbelievable. Now you got
1: you to... I mean, you, know, you got to give us the gory details. Yeah. About. I mean, how, how close did you... How close did you get to these suckers? Because these mm. things are very dangerous.
2: They are incredibly dangerous, so... Um, you
1: notice the tone I, in their voice <laughs> change, then? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> From, but, I don't, but I don't believe From you. A kid yeah. in a toy store to... These things are very dangerous. But I actually kind of wish
2: I got a bit closer. But... <laughs> <I'm not. laughs> but Mum's very, very happy that I didn't yeah, get it. <laughs> we were probably about a kilometre away, did, I guess. But, um, yeah, it was pretty phenomenal.
3: So, so just reflecting back on your um, childhood. Yes. Did you, in this grown-up world, chasing 14 <laughs> extraordinarily dangerous meteorological phenomena, yep. did you try to measure them anyway? Did you try? Was, was there a Dorothy? Did this
2: happen? No. Oh, I actually did, though go to the Twister Museum in... There's a Twister Museum! <laughs> There's a Twister ah! Museum in Wakita, which is the town yeah, where yeah. Um, the aunt lives in Twister. And, and did- I actually saw... I have some photos of Dorothy. Oh,
3: <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's I know. Right, anyone okay.
2: else would find that incredibly boring, but I was no, really cool. excited. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, no, it was... um. we we were just incredibly lucky. I'd kind of left myself five days to go storm chasing, went with another meteorologist who works in the Bureau in Queensland um, who goes pretty much every year. So he really knew what it was doing. Um, He has a... He takes a laptop with some software on it where we can see, overlay all the radar, all the computer model data, the road networks, we have a GPS, so we know where we are and we're looking at the storms. America has an amazing warning system, so they draw little polygons and um, Mm. (laughs) when you're within the polygon, your phone starts making this terribly scary noise and tells (laughs) you that there's a tornado warning. Um, And so we knew we needed to be on the south of any of the storms. Um, Mm -hmm. The tornadoes form sort of on the south, so if you're on the southern side... You're behind it. You're behind it. They're moving away from you, um, but did yeah, you, we um, had. Did you speed? Ah, uh, no, actually, our driver was really good. Because
1: had because we. we had, <laughs> oh, yeah. What were you the back <laughs> of a limo? I, mean, I had the sorry. I had the image of you standing on the back of a. Yeah, ute uh, yeah. Going, I, I yeah.
2: would have done that. No, <laughs> but there actually are people who.
1: Basically, yeah, yeah, do that yeah, sort of yeah. Oh, we've
2: we seen actually, that footage. Oh, we actually saw a guy. Um, we ra- met a guy who'd been who's been chasing for like thirty years, and he has like this whole his car's set up. It's covered in this stuff that basically can take. It's like a plastic that can take like baseball-sized hail hitting it and wow. isn't going to dent oh, wow. the car. Um, and then yeah. they've got their laptop set up um, inside. They go as close as they can and get footage, and then they sell it. So they've got like wow. they've got brokers who like weather brokers who broker the footage. And sell it to the news agencies over there. It's quite phenomenal. It's a real, and, it is a real business. So
3: these guys that are doing this stuff, you know, hardcore like that. Yeah, are they? Um, you know, I know this is this is again. I'm going to ask you to you know broad brush something. But is are these people like rock hard stunt types, or are they just massive nerds? Oh,
2: massive nerds. Okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, there is, there is. <laughs> thousands of people, we call it chaser convergence, where basically there's just like, <laughs> you, because you're waiting a lot of the time, the storms sort of really get going around 5pm, so okay. you're kind of you're looking at all the model data and forecasting where the storms are going to be, and then you're kind of waiting, and then all of a sudden a storm will go up, and it's starting to look good on the radar, and then just 10,000 cars just take off, and, and are all driving down the same road to try and chase the and storm.
3: To, and to any of these groups, do they, do they so obviously that there's data available, you know, yeah. largely publicly do any of them, have any of them designed their own sort of bespoke software or, or data analysis pr- approaches?
2: I don't know, but I bet they have. It is a huge business over yeah, there. Yeah, and, I yeah. mean, they're charging people <laughs> thousands of dollars a day or thousands of dollars a week, actually, right. um, to go on these Chasing adventures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they need to have something to say, yeah, we're better than the yeah, next guy. So, yeah. But, so- um, but, yeah, we saw like from this one storm, we had it three times or t- two times actually where we had three funnels on the ground at once and we had people telling us that they've been chasing for 30 years and they've never wow. experienced anything like it. So I was just very, very lucky.
1: Uh, sorry, but you know, I am the same kid in the candy store as you. I mean, <laughs> I, I just find of all the meteorological things that we can see in the world, these are the most awesome by quite a margin to me. Yeah. I just think they're ex- incredible. Um, when you, you said you got to about a kilometre. I mean, can, can you feel it at that point? I mean, is it the, the air pressure and stuff, can, you, can, you, can you feel
2: it? It's one of the questions that I got asked the most was, what does it feel yeah, like? Yeah, yeah. It's just very windy, <laughs> Very windy. <laughs> which is actually what Helen Hunt says.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Twister. Yeah. How was
2: it? It was windy, yeah. Um, yeah. and and it is, and because um, basically what's happening is that the because we're on the southern side, the winds are basically feeding in from basically right. coming into our back um, and just. Zooming in towards mm, the storm. Mm. So it's just, yeah, and, and incredibly humid. I mean, basically uh, okay. through the Midwest of the States, um, the reason why you have Tornado Alley is because everything, all the ingredients are lined up. So you've got all of the humidity, mm. the heat, the wind is right, um, and yeah, just the right, well, all of it comes together, and, and that's what makes a storm like this. Mm. I mean, we had a funnel, um, it ended up being an um, EF3, so. Mm-hmm. pretty pretty mm-hmm. decent um mm-hmm. tornado on the ground for about 90 minutes wow which is just incredible normally they drop for maybe a minute or maybe up yeah. to 5 minutes wow. 90 minutes it was incredible and thankfully yeah. no one got injured from it which was the most important thing
1: yeah and and what what about sort of electrostatically i mean do 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 you get a feeling that like is there any change Can you, you know, some storms you can feel the electrostatics from lightning discharges and so forth. I mean, do you you feel anything there? Is there anything different?
2: Most of that part of the storm is to the north of where the tornadoes are forming. So I definitely didn't feel, uh, or we didn't see a lot of lightning during the tornadoes themselves. Mm. Um, But, oh, gee, afterwards there was some phenomenal lightning. Yeah, yeah, we've got some great time lapse. It's just amazing.
1: And, and, I mean, while we've got you in here and you are a meteorologist, I mean, what, what is happening during a tornado? I mean, what what's the process? Like, why why do they drop down mm. and what causes them then to, you know...
2: To dissipate. dissipate? Well, it really is just that key ingredients and that basically it, we need a certain amount of what we call wind shear, um, which is where you've got winds kind of, um, I guess, rotating. We get what we call a mesocyclone, which is... You can see the whole... This whole part of the cloud just rotating, rotating. and that's just mm. all to do with the winds feeding in, and just all mm. it's just all the ingredients coming together. Um, and then we get um, like basically the rotation at the surface, and then it starts to pick up the debris. So then you see the funnel, um, and then eventually, all it, all it takes is for something small to change, the wind to just maybe stop blowing quite as strong, or um, just something to cut off that infeed of moisture mm. and yeah. wind, um, and then they'll they'll dissipate. So yeah, it was unbelievable to see all of that happening. Extraordinary style. (laughs) Just amazing, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, Now, given we we are broadcasting public and public record, if you go again, can you take me with you? (laughs) (laughs) Hang on, Chris.
2: Maybe. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That
1: was a bit worse than I was hoping for. I have quite a few
2: people who are kind of lining up now, but to be honest, I don't know if I need to go again. Oh. I feel like I feel like
3: Shannon will give you a hundred bucks though. Yeah. Right?
2: <laughs> I feel like I was so lucky, and there's years yeah. where people don't see anything. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, yeah. I just feel very lucky. It
1: sounds like an extraordinary experience. Yeah. And uh, well, well done. I mean, Thank um, you. yeah. It's. Uh,
2: oh, well done to my friend who... Pick the spot to
1: go. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, Look, I'm, I'm just I'm, – folks, you've you got to understand, you know, we were out in the kitchen before uh, before the show started and Andrew and I were just trying to work out what we'd talk about and she said, oh, um, by the way. <laughs> and I'm like, get out. Well, there may have been some coarse language that Possibly. we can't bring onto the, onto the show. Um, but that's – it's just extraordinary. I mean, it's the stuff of fairy tales for a meteorologist. Oh, truly I'm sure. I,
2: except I have a big problem now. I don't have a number one to go on my bucket list anymore. What What's do I next? do?
1: Yeah, you got nothing. It's all downhill for you. I no know. One. That's a bit sad. It's a
2: hard problem to have, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> donut van, Queen Vic Market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First served donut van, Queen Vic Market. Sunday yeah, yeah that's sounds so bit.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio
4: 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: In the studio now we have Catherine Snow. She's from the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Catherine, welcome to Triple R. Hi. How's it going? Good. Now, you work on uh, Hepatitis C. We're pretty sure Chris has got it. That's why we've (laughs) sat him over to the side. First of all... The, the three the different types of hepatitis talk, talk us through what, what hepatitis is and what these different classifications mean
4: sure so yeah um, viral hepatitis confuses a lot of people for this reason so there's actually five types there's Life. A B C D and E really um, they're all completely different uh, mm-hmm. the only thing they have in common is that they're viral infections that affect the liver okay so hep A is spread through water hep B is spread through body, body fluids generally so through sex and often from mother to child and then hep C is only transmitted through blood okay uh, and then and DNA are quite uncommon and nobody talks about them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel better now have that I hadn't they heard of DNA. I was yeah. going to say,
2: hence our surprise.
4: Are they, are they
1: not interesting?
4: Um, oh, I can't even keep them straight in my head. They're much less common. One mm. of them only affects people who also have Hep B, so it's like a really niche thing. Right. Um, a friend of mine works on Hep E, so if she's listening, she's going to be really mad at me. Um, but, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're just much less common. B and C are far and away the yeah. most common in Australia.
1: All right, let's focus on C because that's where most of your work is. Now, you, you mentioned blood there, so we're we talking mosquito transmission no. or what, what, what's the scenario there? No, for it's, so
4: it's, it's blood-to-blood contact, okay. so it's spread through um, unsafe injecting most mm-hmm. often and <laughs> Before the virus was discovered in the 90s, it was quite often spread through blood transfusions before okay. we knew to screen yep. blood for it. Um, but, yeah, the, the main thing is unsafe injections. So it's very common among people who inject drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, if they've shared unsafe injecting equipment, then it tends to uh, pass mm. that way. Okay. It can be said through tattooing or, you know, dodgy dentistry or right. a few other things, but it's, yeah, it's it's not mosquito-borne.
1: Right, it's yeah, because every now and then you hear this story about some clinician who's had, you know, hepatitis C and has given it to 50 patients and... I mean, do they know they've got it, do you think, or, I mean...
4: Um, I think it probably depends. There are certainly quite a few people out there who have hep C and aren't aware that they've got yep. it. Um, you know, testing is by no means universal, so not everybody is aware. Um, some of those cases, it's possible that the person did know. Um, okay. It's, yeah,
1: it's it's hard to say. So Now, what does hep C do to the body? I mean, what, what how, would I, how would I know or how would I suspect that I even have hep C?
4: Yeah, so this is one of the problems with the disease. So it, it tends not to make people particularly ill initially. Mm-hmm. Um it's it does become chronic in the majority of people so when it's right. left untreated for a long time sort of in the region of 10 20 30 years oh, uh, yeah. then it starts to cause quite severe liver damage and people can develop liver cirrhosis yep. um, and some people develop yeah. liver cancer and some people require transplants okay. um, but it's yeah it's something that has to be left for a long time right. before that
1: and in short so I mean you, you mentioned the decades we're talking about mm. so I mean how long could I have Hep C and just not know and not get any symptoms whatsoever all the time?
4: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people pick it up when they're young. That's when people tend to, you know, do their drug use and you know tend to experiment with more the more interesting side of life uh, so lots of people pick it up in their late teens or their early 20s and then won't think anything of it may not mm. be tested at that time uh, and then they'll find out you know in their 40s once their liver function tests go off the chart then their doctor will test them for hepatitis and be oh wow okay this is what's going on mm. um so yeah very often it could be 30 years someone might have it and not be aware of it
1: mm. now you've been working on this with regards to <coughs> testing and the retesting and so forth. I mean, I mean talk us through what that process is. I mean, why would a person go and get tested in the first place? I I, I suspect it's, oh, I may have been exposed. Um, And and then how do you know, what's this retesting about? I mean, what's all that about?
4: Yeah, so Hep B and Hep C have uh, a common problem, which is that it's not one test that's needed to diagnose it. So generally people have a screening test, which they might get in the context of sexual health screening. They might get it because they're pregnant, um, or they might get it just in terms of kind of their doctor doing, you know, an annual health check. They're getting older, you know, they're 40. Oh, let's test for everything, you know. So a lot of it's not necessarily for a particular reason. It's, it might be they get a whole variety of tests and this one comes back positive. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of GPs aren't as knowledgeable about viral hepatitis as we would like. Okay. Um, and it's also a field that's changed a lot in the past few years. So for GPs that trained a long time ago, they might not realise that there's treatment, they might not be very aware of the virus, that the virus might not have been discovered, you know, when right, they were yeah, going right. through a medical school. So that You would hope...
1: I mean, I hate to (laughs) chuck this out there, but you would hope they've read something since then.
4: You you would hope, but we I mean <laughs> we know we,
1: we know there's a few that yeah
4: well but I mean we expect GPs to be experts on hundreds exactly. of different health conditions right they can't yep. stay on top of everything so yeah. you know that first test might come back positive and then what we were looking at was okay well when that happens are people then getting the second and the third tests that mm. they need to work out whether they're still infected and if they are what type of infection what strain do they right. have and what type of treatment would they need and what we found was that out of thirty five thousand people in Victoria who have had a positive first test at some point in the last kind of ten or fifteen years, only about fifteen thousand of them have had that second and third test, yeah, whereas gosh. about twenty thousand are still out there. We wow. think that haven't had the second and/or the third test that they need to find out their current infection status.
1: Do we? Do we have an? Under, I mean, this seems an extraordinary. What's that? Seventy percent or something? It's a lot. Sixty yeah, percent So, yeah. <clears throat> do we have an understanding of what's? causing that lack of testing. I mean, it's interesting, I reflect years ago, there was uh, I was working in a particular department of the university and there was a break-in and the person there put a lot of blood all over my office. Mm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was exposed. Yeah. And I remember going and getting an HIV tests and so forth. Mm. And then, uh, To be honest, I just figured that they'd call me. Um, You know, I never went back. You know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, it was just there didn't seem to be any process at all. And, you know, 20 years later, I'm feeling good, so I'm suspecting I'm okay. Um, Maybe you should go have that (laughs) Probably. I hope my wife's not listening to this. Um, But, you you know, I mean, is it a process failure? Is it a knowledge failure? I mean, what's this is extraordinary failure, rate.
4: I, I think it's a variety of all of those things. I think, you know, the thing that I always compare it to is the pap screening program, right, right. which is a, yeah. a, that's a disease that we have a fantastic mm, process in mm, place for yeah. all over Australia, right? You Women get letters telling them to get tested every yep. year. If they're positive, their doctor gets a letter advising them of what they should do next. The woman gets a letter saying, this is what's happened, this is what will happen, happen next. You're next due for a test in year mm, X, you know, mm. so on and so forth. Um yep you know and and that's really well taken care of viral hepatitis by contrast even though it should be similar it's it's a virus it's a chronic infection it causes cancer we should have a similar yeah. system in place we don't you okay. know it's up to the gp if the gp doesn't understand the test results which we know is common you know if they're not able to communicate to the person what has to happen this is very serious we need to follow this up then yeah people just fall through the cracks mm-hmm.
3: I reckon that's, that's a really interesting point, that, that idea that there are some diseases that seem to be... We have all kinds of fantastic campaigns and systems in place mm. and others that we really don't. Um, but again, to go back to, to your earlier point that, I mean, where, where is that line drawn? At what point mm. do we sort of go, okay, how do we decide mm. what are the diseases that we have to get really regular about? Mm. And I think one of the things, obviously, is this, is, can, be, this can be hidden for a long time. Mm. But what, what are the principles that we should use... to to define risk and therefore action?
4: Mm. So I think, yeah, a lot of the time in public health this ends up being done in a relatively haphazard fashion and it depends a lot on who has the best advocacy and who has the best story, Mm. Mm. right? Mm. And I think with viral hepatitis it's really about the people it affects. You know, Hep B tends to affect um, people from non-English speaking backgrounds, it tends to affect migrant communities so lots of people in Australia wouldn't know anyone who has Hep B and likewise, you know, Hep C affects people who inject drugs, that's very stigmatised, It's not something people tend to disclose to their families if they have that in their history Mm -hmm. or if they're doing that now. So, again, people might think that they don't know anyone who has hep C or they might not know anyone who has hep C. Almost everyone knows someone, often a woman in their extended family, who's had breast cancer. Right. Mm. Right. Lots of people, you know, before the pap screening program happened, yeah. would have known a woman who had cervical cancer. Yeah. So those, you know, ditto, prostate cancer, colon cancer, you know, yeah, those yeah. are diseases that can affect anybody. Mm. And so it's really easy to get public support yeah. for programs to address those types of diseases. Hep B and hep C are much more common causes of death than cervical cancer is now. Yeah but because they affect specific populations rather than potentially anyone we don't make the same effort which is strange because the effort that we would need to make to take care of Hep B and Hep C is much smaller because yeah. they're smaller yeah, groups yeah. of people yeah, 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 you know yeah. so we could do that so easily yeah. Do you Can think, mm-hmm.
2: sorry, do you think that they're, um, they're the kind of people who are going to want to listen and be helped do you think that that would be an extra challenge that you might have? Um,
4: I think that's a really common sort of conception and that's yeah. definitely something, so I work in prison health and that's something we a lot, you know, especially yeah. from research in the US they say, oh, they never go to the doctor, they don't engage mm. with care, you know, they're not interested. Actually, what we see in Australia when people have good access to healthcare through Medicare is they do go. You yeah, know, our guys who, who are injecting drugs they're in contact with GPs really frequently they're going much more often than other people their own age. So, actually there's a huge opportunity there to that's engage great. with them and provide mm. care, mm. but The practitioners that they're seeing need to be knowledgeable about these specific health conditions and they need to be on top of what they need to offer.
1: Sounds to me like what we need is a high-profile sporting volunteer to be infected with Hep C.
4: or or to disclose that they were infected with Hep C. Yeah. I mean, the so I mean we had Chopper Reed. Um, right. there's yeah. no, you know yeah. Yeah.
1: There's,
4: and I mean look there I I guarantee there are plenty of, you know, musicians out there who were big in the 80s Absolutely, who yeah. have it, you know, it's yeah. just a question of yeah, getting past that stigma and getting people to talk about their experiences.
2: Yeah. That's a really good point because you've you've referred to people sort of 20, 30 years ago. Has there been a less of an increase in the number in recent times, or uh, yeah, is it fairly similar? Or
4: yeah, I mean, it's definitely it is something that people are still getting when they're young. Um, but yeah, I mean, the people that we're really worried about are yeah, guys in their kind of forties mm. or fifties or even sixties who were a little wild in the seventies or eighties,
1: yeah. um,
4: you know, and who might not think about it. You wouldn't think, you know, someone someone who's fifty five now doesn't think that their heroin use when they were eighteen in the mm, nineteen seventies, you know, yeah. is, is still affecting them. Why it was, would it they? Was a whole about, you lifetime. Yeah. yeah, you know, and yeah. it's it's not the kind of thing someone brings up with their doctor either, is it? You know, you go. For your checkup, by the way, doctor. You know, yeah. see, you know, thirty yeah. years Back ago, I was a little yeah. wild. You know, <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't
1: think it was relevant. So, so just, I mean, just bring it to to a close there, Catherine. I mean, what what is the advice that we should put out? Because it sounds to me like if there's any chance at all. Mm. You, you should go and see your GP and just get these tests done because liver failure is, you know, there are, you can't grow those on trees. No. Um, so it's, it is is a, a really big problem mm. and it's one that, as you, as you say, is relatively easy to deal with.
4: Yeah, definitely. Mm. So, yeah, look, I mean, the testing is pretty straightforward if you've got a knowledgeable GP. So, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if based on what you've just heard me say, you think there's any possibility that you might have been exposed to hep C at some point in your life or certainly mm. if a GP has ever told you that you've tested positive for hep C, yeah, Definitely go back, have a chat, like just say you want to follow it up, you know, find out Mm. about whether you need treatment if you're still infected and then find out about getting on treatment. You know, it should be
1: really straightforward. Yeah. Well, let's hope uh, there's more of a push into that and with people like yourself promoting it, um, hopefully we will get on top of this as we have the other conditions you mentioned. Um, Catherine Snow, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us and um, hope you uh, continue to fight this good fight and we get rid of hep Hep C as fast as possible. Thanks, guys. Catherine Snow from the School of Population and Global Health from the University of Melbourne.
4: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia.
1: In the studio, we have Katie Buckley from the College of Science, Health and Engineering at La Trobe University. Welcome to Triple R, Katie.
0: It's lovely to be here.
1: Now, you work, uh, we we met the other day at the Three Minute Thesis Grand Final out at La Trobe, which you were one of the final eight. Congratulations on that. It was pretty cool.
0: It was a very exciting um, experience, and the diversity of topics was fabulous, so it's really exciting to hear that Hannah got to come in and chat last week. Yeah,
1: yeah, we had Hannah in last week. That was cool, and um, uh, now it's your turn. Now, you work, I mean, we got you in because you work on voice. I do. Stuff to do with voice. Um, We, voice is kind of important to us here on radio, but in the Workplace, actually, I mean, one of the things I hadn't really thought about is just how many people rely on their voice. I mean, give us an idea of that around the world. I mean, it's obviously pretty big in some places.
0: Yeah. So the um, current estimate is that up to fifty percent of the workforce actually couldn't do their job without their voice. So that goes beyond the you know socialising that most of mm. us do in our workplaces, mm. so that we can get through the day. It's actually the job tasks that they're required to do um, rely on voice, and those people are the people that we really want to know about. Um, We know lots about people like teachers because they're the ones who will front up to see a speech pathologist if they have a voice problem. But what actually fueled my research and my interest in this area was thinking about the kinds of occupations who might not step up. And so, um, as we spoke about when you and I met, my passion for sport actually led me into looking at sports coaching. And with a group like sports coaches (coughs) who don't have the time or resources to be able to support their own health, how do we get them thinking about voice,
1: yeah, and, and is is that because they <laughs> the stereotypes they do a lot of yelling, or is it, mm. or is it because they they have to project? I mean, what element of being a sports coach is so reliant on voice? Because you, you could argue the same, you know, university lecturer or whatever, but but it's it's different. I mean, the, the environment's very different.
0: Absolutely. And some of these things are actually very common to other occupations. So you touched on environment and Mm. the the thing that um, often people will think about when they start delving through this is, well, of course, you know, you've got a basketball stadium where the acoustics Mm. are ridiculous and especially when you've got a crowd in. Um, But actually it's Mm. a lot of other factors that can impact on voice and it can be things as simple as the distance between communication partners. So Mm -hmm. if you've got a player that's running around a field or running through a basketball court, the coach may not always be in close proximity to who they're speaking to, but it can also be really subtle things like thinking about body fatigue or how much um, autonomy does a coach Mm. have to actually change what they do at work to support their voices. Okay.
3: So, I know that um, that professional sports coaching is is a massive industry and and many people who are now entering it um, at any level have a lot of training. There are, there are courses all over the world that are extraordinarily expensive and, and highly rated in a lot of cases. Do those courses ever consider voice um, or subtlety of use of voice?
0: So increasingly, the, those courses and even um, ongoing professional development in um, programs where Maybe training hasn't been the traditional Mm -hmm. realm. So if we think about the um, AFL coaches, Mm -hmm. I've worked with the AFL Coaches Association because a lot of their coaches move from being players into coaching roles. Mm. So there is an awareness that vocal communication is an important part of the teaching process of coaching. Mm. And some places will do some specific targeted work with voice. So the Australian Sports Commission did do a program for a while where they got a NIDA voice expert to come in. But where the gap seems to sit at the moment is in applying that knowledge. So people get into the workplace and not just coaches, this can happen for people who do voice workshops in general. And they go, yeah, but what do I actually do? Because mm, it's one mm, thing to have the knowledge, but as we know with a lot of things to do with health at work,
2: it's actually being in the here and yeah, now sure. that's mm. the hard part. Mm.
1: So, uh, Andrea.
2: Oh, I was just going to ask. So, um, singers obviously warm up their vocal cords and that sort of thing before they sing. Should coaches be doing warm-ups before they go mm. out and coach? So,
0: it's it's an interesting question actually, and it's one that um, I also work at the Australian Catholic University supervising their um, voice program that they have with their final year speech students and we were talking about this very thing last Thursday because we've had a couple of other occupations come in where people may not be singers and we've been speaking to them about why is voice important and how should you be supporting your voice and warm ups is one of the really important parts If you kind of take it back a step and think about voice being a body process, we'd warm up our bodies if we were about to go for a run, for instance, Mm. or if we knew that we were going to be going and doing some type of physical activity. And so what we know from the evidence at at the current time is that actually doing those sorts of warm-up and cool-down processes are really critical if you're going to be engaging in vocally demanding activities so that you don't engage in straining the voice.
1: Mm. It's interesting... uh, if you're if you're in an area where voice is important, I mean, I know when, when I did the emceeing role of the Trobe Uni Grand Final for yeah. three minutes, thesis curve, uh, you, you may not have been aware of that, but I, I'd been a bit sick that week, and so I had that tickle cough scenario going. And and I was just so conscious of whether or not I'd actually be able to use my voice properly during that program. And during one of the opening sessions where one of the other speakers um, had the mic for a few moments, I started getting that tickle. And I'm not sure if you're, you're aware of this, Katie, but I did the rest of the event with a throat lozenge in my mouth. And it, it's interesting just when you think about that, you know, what you do, I mean, how you go about it, what, what are the strategies? I mean, is that the sort of stuff that we can, we can teach people about maintaining that purity of voice and so forth? It seems as though, you know, it, people come into your office and they, you know, go to the ends of the earth to make sure you're sitting up straight, but they don't do that. They don't do that stuff.
0: And it's interesting too, there's a a few really interesting points in what you were just saying then and I think that it's worth thinking about the applicability of anything that we teach in science Mm. and particularly when it's applied within workplace settings because it's great to think about things like standing up straight but we think about with ergonomics that the best posture is the next posture. So it's all about how do you actually facilitate someone doing a task in a way that's healthy for them Mm. and if we think about voice, some of that is about warming up uh, So if there's a vocally demanding activity. Some of it is around recognising that that's going to be vocally demanding and so buffering that time with some Mm. quieter time. Uh, And it also may be recognising some of those symptoms. So you were mentioning about having the tickle Uh, and the listeners might be able to hear that my voice at the moment is a bit strained. Um, I've got involvement with the Melbourne Fringe Festival, so I'm quite Uh, tired. Um, So my voice is sounding tired today. And so in preparation for those kinds of situations, you might think about, do I need to have hydration? So do I need to increase my fluid intake? um do i need to remember that if i'm having a chronic cough or a a throat clearing Mm. that i need to actually do a silent swallow or take a sip of water um
2: do i need to stand a bit closer to the person i'm speaking to Mm. is there anything that we can do so for example um as a meteorologist we do radio Mm -hmm. quite a lot um we just started doing some new videos where um i'm going to be speaking for three minutes non-stop um and I do often feel my throat's going to go, and then you get that panic of, "Oh my goodness, mm. what am I going to do here?" <clears throat> so, um, what for thing in those situations is there things like you were saying, take a sip of water? Are there other things like is? a few people have said oh hot water with honey things like that is there anything is that an old wives tale or is there the little things that if you do feel if you're in a situation where you need to be talking for quite some time um and yeah you feel things coming on what are the good things to do it's interesting because there are a lot of old wives tales that sit there with with voice and some of them i think
0: are a comfort as well um i i am one for hot drinks before having to use my voice and it's actually because it makes me feel better Mm. that makes me relaxed that then means that my muscles deconstrict, so they mm. stop being really tense and tight and I start to relax, and that then helps to facilitate voice. So because when you swallow, the water actually doesn't hit the vocal folds because they sit in the airway, so that fluid and um, and food actually go down the esophagus mm. into the stomach. So it's not that you're actually putting water or honey or any of those things on the vocal folds, which is sometimes how it's spoken about in yeah. old wives' yeah. and tales. Uh, yeah,
1: coat those babies. Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: <laughs> so it's not specifically that, but the sign. The science behind it is actually more to do with how the body then engages more globally and the other thing that we can do is those things that we would normally do if we're starting to feel anxious or um, the fight or flight responses kicking in like grounding like breathing exercises mm. like slowing speech rate those sorts of things that actually allow the whole body to relax which then of course leads on to helping with the voice
3: mm. it sounds like the point is that if you um if you are drinking something before using your voice for any reason and it is coating your vocal cords you'll only relax because you've drowned
1: yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly now katie just in terms of um those sort of strategies that you would give people. I mean, I mean, what what should people do hearing this interview if they're in this sort of industry? I mean, where do they go to get this sort of support? I mean, you know, there's heaps of places we know we can go if we want support around other areas of health and so forth. But in terms of maintaining voice, I know Andrew and I are thinking of ourselves here, so is Chris Absolutely. K.P. Absolutely. Where, where would you go to get that sort of support information to be able to maintain your voice effectively for long periods? So I have
0: two answers to that question. More generally, if you are feeling like you've got a chronic um, struggle with your mm-hmm. voice. So it may not be that you've necessarily got a diagnostic um label, but it might be that you're, you're feeling that your voice always sounds a bit husky. Okay. Uh, yep. It might be that it's fatiguing by the end of the day. It might be that you're in a vocally demanding job and you're not quite sure how to support your voice. Mm. Your first port of call would be a specialist speech pathologist that mm-hmm. focuses on voice. So we're really lucky in Melbourne. We actually have a world-leading centre, the Melbourne Voice Analysis Centre or MVAC, and they are brilliant. Deb Fioland, who is one of the lead speech pathologists there, was actually the voice consultant for Matilda, oh, right. and she's she's voice consulted on a lot of major musicals mm, globally. Mm. Uh, and Jenny Oates is there as well. So that's a really fantastic centre. If it is that it's actually that you're wanting to think about preventative strategies that are specifically mm. helpful for your workplace. That's where what I'm doing is important. So this is actually something that hasn't been looked at globally in very much detail. Scandinavian countries have touched on it a little bit, but it's actually an emerging area. Mm. And what we really want to be starting to build on, so this can get driven from a public end as well as from research, is actually prioritising that voice is an occupational health issue and Mm. that when your workplace is thinking about how do we support the occupational health of our employees, that voice becomes a consideration. And it's not just prescribing things like, oh, we'll just make sure everybody has a bottle of water on their desk, Mm. which is also very Mm. helpful to have. But actually thinking about for my workplace, what does my employee need?
1: Yeah. Now, look, it sounds good. And it's something that uh, it's an area where when I heard you speak, I I thought, oh, this is um, relatively new. I haven't heard this before. So I think it's something that uh, those of us who use our voice a lot in their workplaces would appreciate any support there that we can get. Katie, thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R, and good luck with the continued work in this area.
0: My absolute pleasure. And if anyone would like to correspond with me further. I'm on all the social medias at Voice of the Game.
1: Sounds great. Katie Buckley from the College of Science, Health and Engineering at La Trobe University.
0: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Now, we we have determined uh, during the short break, Chris, yes. in, that we're going to talk about the RV investigator yes. in more detail in a few weeks. <laughs> yes. um, I keep putting it off, but I want to get into the detail. You're on this amazing research yeah, yeah, yeah. vessel. That's um, little
3: bit I'll be able to get back to my uh, to my photos and my uh, my scrawly notes and actually have something slightly more um, robust to tell you about okay yeah,
1: yeah. because <laughs> Andrew it's been raining has not it we should mention yeah. that it's been there's a lot there's a lot of damage throughout Victoria and a lot of unsafe conditions
2: yeah there really is uh, basically the last time we had flooding like this was the 2010 2011 kind of spring mm. summer period and um, that was where we had a really strong La Nina um, now we, we have a neutral to weak La Nina at the moment but record we've had record warm <clears> Indian o- and um, Pacific Ocean waters around Australia. So much water it, in the landscape. Yeah, so it's
3: actually, it's not just more rain, but is it more rain across more area as well? Yeah, you know, it's um, so pretty much all of eastern yeah. Australia yeah, yeah, that's, that's is flooded impression. at the yeah, moment wow. yeah. <laughs> to some <sun> capacity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a really big is, area.
2: It is a really big area um, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. it's not going to go away anytime soon. We've, got, we've had a big rain event um, over the weekend. We're well, actually yep. not quite as big as obviously the, this week, but mm-hmm. another one following up. Tuesday, Wednesday this week, wow. um, Birdsville Races was washed out this right. year. That Does has only happen. happened yeah. like twice yeah, in history, well. yeah. um, and there is heaps more rain for Queensland to come. So basically, I. This week there's like 200 road closures mm. across Victoria. Wow. So if you're on the roads this weekend and, you Just know, over the next few weeks, be careful out there because, mm. mm. yeah, we haven't seen rain like this for a while. Yeah, I
1: guess a big shout-out to all our volunteer services Absolutely. as well who, you know, been out there, no doubt, repairing roofs yeah. at a rate of knots and, yeah, and, and, and helping people. Yeah, and a big, big shout-out to the umbrella repair people as well because, uh, you know, <laughs> they've been flat out. <laughs> I'm being serious. It's
2: been a here. big year for umbrellas.
1: Yeah, you know all those shops that suddenly all the umbrellas yeah, are lying the front out the front when front. You walk in front? Bastards, you know, trying to make money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is It is a big deal. And I think it's something mm. um, people need to be very, very careful because there's been a huge amount of rain. And I'm waiting for someone on TV to use that phrase that we heard back during the Brisbane floods find me a hydrologist. <laughs> <laughs> remember that? No one knew yeah, what a yeah. hydrologist yeah, yeah, was. Yeah, remember that, yeah. I and mean, all of a sudden, hydrologists were the new kings of we're, the castle. We're
3: going we're gonna to find that's going to be a career choice. You know, in 10 years' time, everyone's going to want to be a hydrologist. Yeah, there'll
1: be a mean of them. We won't know what to do with them <laughs> so, because <laughs> there'll be droughts everywhere. The day. They've had to teach well. me how to
2: talk hydro this week. I wasn't very good at it. and It's a mm. co- totally different lingo to Total the hydrology. Yeah,
1: yeah, water. So. It's hard to pronounce. Uh, thanks for joining us for this Hour of Science. We will chat to you again next week. Andrea, great to see you and have you Thank in the studio. Thank you for having studio. me back. We hate you because you've seen those tornadoes. Yes. Chris K.P., as always, great. Oh, thank you so much. You're a big (laughs) softy. Have a great Sunday, folks, and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a
0: podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community
4: radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.